I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group. You're listening to A Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. As always, I hope everyone, their families, and loved ones are well and staying safe. I'm going to keep my intro relatively tight, but suffice to say, I'm really excited to have my next guest, Alex Edmonds, on the show to discuss the ideas behind his new book, Grow the Pie. The book covers an incredible amount of ground, from examining the fixed pie mentality to unpacking the evidence for how it can create longer-term value. We also talk about how the relationship among stakeholders, shareholders, and corporate purpose doesn't have to be a zero-sum game, and why our expectations for companies and their contribution to society needs to be both re-examined and frankly rebased. Along these lines, I also want to hear your ideas on how to grow the pie, when for too many people, it's shrinking right now. In other words, how do you think companies should respond to the coronavirus crisis in a grow the pie context? And so with the summer reading ahead, I'll send copies of Alex's book and some podcast swag to the three listeners with the most compelling ideas to these questions over the next month. To be eligible, just post your ideas on social media. Twitter and LinkedIn are great. And make sure to tag Alex and me, as well as a Sustainable Future podcast. Alex is Professor of Finance at London Business School, with a research focus on responsible investment. He's spoken at the World Economic Forum in Davos, testified in the UK Parliament, and given the TED Talk, What to Trust in a Post-Truth World, which has nearly 2 million views, as well as the TEDx Talk, The Social Responsibility of Business. He serves on the steering group of the Purposeful Company, the Royal London Asset Management's Responsible Investment Advisory Committee, and is managing editor of the Review of Finance. Alex began his professional career at Morgan Stanley in investment banking and fixed income sales and trading. After a PhD in finance from MIT Sloan as a Fulbright Scholar, he became a finance professor at Wharton, where he was granted tenure and won 14 teaching awards in six years. Welcome to the podcast, Alex. It's great to have you here. Thanks very much, Jason. It's great to be on. Great. I'm looking forward to this. So first, I want to touch on your background. I always find it really enjoyable speaking to people whose personal and professional arcs have have taken dramatic changes in course through might be the private sector and public sector or education like you. So how did this evolve for you? How did how did you go from the banker trope to university's educator and researcher? So I really did enjoy my time in investment banking. I was at Morgan Stanley in London. I know that many people think of investment banking as being mistreated and work really hard. But while we did have to work hard, I found the job interesting. So you work with companies on their biggest problems. As a junior person, you were still working on big deals. But one deal that I worked on, actually the first one, was selling a business called First National from Abbey National, our client, to GE. And the day after we made that sale, um, the Financial Times was was praising the deal and there was so much excitement about it. But then the day after that, everybody had forgotten about the deal. And I thought, well, we've spent I spent seven months of my life working on one company's problems at one time. And this had a, a short term impact. But if I was to do something like academia, where if you release a paper, that could be timeless, that could apply to many companies in different industries in different countries uh, at, at all time periods. And so that's why I chose to move into academia is that the bandwidth of the contributions might be broader. So let's start out with the overview of your new book, Grow the Pie. Um, first, let's start out with some context. What 
provoke the ideas behind the book and and how do they upend you know our prevailing assumptions about a zero sum fixed pi paradigm yeah, thanks. So I, I wrote the book, I started about two years ago because of the crisis that capitalism seems to find itself in. So there are many legitimate concerns that capitalism only works for the elites, not ordinary people. So we had soaring pay, soaring profits, but incomes of ordinary people were, were flat. And if there was anything that was rising, it was, it was the temperature. However, people's responses to that I think were too extreme at the other end. What they were arguing was that we should heavily restrict business in order to serve society. And so that is the zero sum fixed pie mentality that you were mentioning. So the idea here is that the value that a company creates is a fixed pie. So anything that goes to shareholders is taken away from society. So if you're a CEO, there's some CEOs who think, well, how can I make more profits? It's by taking from society, by cutting worker wages or price gouging customers. But then conversely, pie splitting is, is practiced on the other end. If you're somebody who stands up for society, you think that the only way that you can increase society's slice is by reducing investors' share and straightjacketing business. So the whole idea of Grow the Pie is that there are ways in which we can create social value so that both society and investors can profit. And one of the big heartbeats of the book is you might think that the idea that both can benefit sounds like too good to be true. It's a pipe dream. But I try to put a lot of evidence behind this to show that it's realistic and achievable. Sure. Yeah. One thing that I'm glad you did was dispel this this issue around the uh, Milton Friedman quote, which is infamous for saying that the, the only purpose of a company is to make profit. And, and frankly, I myself have been guilty of, of using that out of context. So it's probably worth talking about the kind of context that, that he actually affords and maybe even bringing in the Michael Jensen point about uh, enlightened shareholder value and why that's important to this discussion. Yeah, thanks, Jason. I think that's that's an important point. So if anybody wants to criticize business, they will point to a famous article by Milton Friedman 50 years ago called The Social Responsibility of Business is to Increase Its Profits. And people often think they don't even need to read beyond the title of the book because that title is so stark, it makes his stance clear businesses should only care about profit. So anybody who wants to criticize capitalism will say, look, business is based on this really narrow-minded view that we only take care of shareholders and we just ignore everybody else. But that's actually an unfair um, treatment of, of Friedman, because if you read the article, it's much more nuanced than you might give it credit for. So what he stresses is that the reason why delivering profits is socially responsible is that, in, at least in the long run, the only way that you can achieve profits is by taking care of society. So if you don't treat your workers well, they'll leave. If you pollute the environment, your brand will be hurt. And if you don't provide great products and services, customers will stop buying. So he said, just focus on profits. And as long as those profits are defined as long-term profits, then any CEO will know that she will have to invest in stakeholders to achieve that. And that's behind the idea that you mentioned of enlightened shareholder value. So you still focus on shareholder value, but it's enlightened because a CEO knows that the best way to this might involve making some long-term investments in stakeholders. So what about the counter-argument to grow the pie, which is that the pie has never really been fixed anyways. You know, if there's a long arc of pie splitting, it has been always against labor and towards capital. 
when we've had big changes in distribution of, of that pie, it's only happened after times of crises. Uh, in 1948, you saw the creation of the NHS in the UK post-war. You also saw in the US the creation of social security programs. Yeah, so I think the idea that the pie has never been fixed, that actually is consistent with the grow the pie argument, the fact that social value can be created and both um, capital and labour can be better off. And so we often do think, well, actually, it's only capital that's benefited. But I'm actually not sure that that's the case. So many of the listeners will know of the factfulness book by Hans Rosling. So I won't quote from that. But um, perhaps not known to everybody might be, say, The Rational Optimist by Matt Ridley. So while the rich have got richer, actually, the poor have done better, particularly if you look at this on a global scale rather than a UK scale. So the poor in the developing world have um, grown their consumption twice as fast um, as the world as a whole. And we are, some will know the John Rawls quote, which is a, a fair society. It's one that if you are randomly placed in society, uh, would you um, be happy to be part of that society? And I would rant be um, rather be randomly placed in 2020 than 50 years ago, we have much better living conditions and, and working conditions. And I think some of the benefits um, might not be quantifiable benefits. So I, I do fully accept the fact that incomes have not grown as fast as CEO pay. But if you think of some of the benefits of, say, banking or, or tech, we are now as consumers able to use mobile banking that is far more convenient than having to go and deposit checks or go to an ATM. With tech, we have free products such as Google Search and Google Maps and Google Docs, without which our lives would be very different. So I think if we look overall rather than just incomes, I do think the lives of ordinary people have improved. Now, can they have improved even faster? Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons for writing the book. But I do think what we've seen over the past few decades is progress where not just capital has benefited, but labor has also. Yeah, I've, I've actually had uh, Anna Rosling with that book on the uh, program oh, uh, several months ago. And it was, it was a fascinating conversation. I guess, you know, again, one of those counter arguments for this, because, because I do agree. I mean, there's been incredible uh, sort of lift in the poorest or, or poverty into the middle class uh, on a global scale. But when you look you know, individually within certain countries the you know, you look at sort of indicators like the Gini coefficient and, and it becomes a bit more nuanced in terms of, of, of how that pie is being split. Well, the, the Gini coefficient looks at equality, whereas I think what matters is, is poverty, not so much inequality. Mm -hmm. So so if indeed everybody is better off, um, then that's what, as an economist, you call a Pareto improvement. Mm -hmm. that, that's great, is that everyone's gaining uh, and nobody's losing. Um, and, and it's true that the, the gains will be distributed equally. So whoever comes up with great ideas such as Google Search and Google Maps, they'll, they'll benefit disproportionately. But as long as others are still benefiting... I still think that's social progress, uh, whereas what we've seen here in the um, coronavirus crisis is the pie is shrinking. Um, perhaps it might be the case that some business leaders have suffered more because if, if they've owned a company and the company goes bankrupt, then their wealth is obliterated. But that doesn't mean that it's good for society, even if equality um, goes up. So I think the first thing that we want to do as a society is to ensure that value is created. And then we do need to ensure that the gains are distributed as equal as possible. But I think that an unequal distribution of something positive is better than an equal distribution of nothing. So let's talk about purpose. I mean, what's the 
surprising is it's really entered our lexicon as a defining quality for, for companies. I'm, I'm starting to see it more and more within the language of what companies are saying. For instance, you've had Unilever certainly re- refer to it and, and specifically talk about divesting parts of their business that are inconsistent with, with purpose. As you write in your book, CVS, the U.S. pharmacy, stopped selling cigarettes because it was inconsistent with their purpose. And you've also had investors like Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, say purpose is not the sole pursuit of profits, but the animating force for achieving them. And and most recently, you've had regulators like the UK Financial Reporting Council uh, formalize them in their codes, like the UK Stewardship Code 2020, where signatories now need to explain quote, the purpose of the organization and an outline of its cultures, values, business model, and strategy. So where is this uh, sudden rise of, of purpose coming from? I think it's from two sources. So the first is the crisis of capitalism that we talked about earlier, where we've got major social problems such as climate change and, and societies looking to companies to alleviate them. But I think the second source is the increasing importance of intangible assets in the modern world. And so let's go back to the uh, social responsibility of business of Milton Friedman that we discussed earlier. So as I mentioned, I think that this idea is much more enlightened than people give it credit for. But it is still incomplete. Why? Because Milton Friedman argues you should invest in stakeholders, but only as an instrumental way to make more profits. And so when something is made for an instrumental basis, then you need to do a calculation. For example, if I'm to build a new factory to make more money, I'm going to calculate how many widgets that factory will produce and how much it can sell it for. And if that's more than the cost of the factory, I'm going to do it. Now, calculation is absolutely fine for tangible assets that you can see and touch. But for intangible assets, such as employees, that's much more difficult to calculate. For example, if I'm going to give my employees days off of volunteering or greater paternity or maternity leave, what is the greater profits that I'm going to be getting from them being more motivated I can't calculate that. And so I think that's why purpose is so important nowadays, is that that frees you from having to reduce every decision to a mathematical calculation, because calculations are are futile when assets are intangible and the world is unpredictable. Instead, if you're driven by the idea, well, I'm going to give my employees days off of volunteering and maternity and paternity leave just because I care about my employees as a human being, that I think is a much more convincing and actionable way to make those decisions rather than through an Excel spreadsheet. It's interesting. I mean, the, the sort of the changing terminology and lexicon of all this up to purpose now, it almost feels like a, in a way a sort of a Maslow's hierarchy or pyramid of, of corporate self-awareness and realization. It, it does. Although, I, having said that, sometimes I, I think the word purpose might be misunderstood. So people often think about purpose, uh, a purposeful company, um, as in an altruistic company. So purposeful is a synonym for altruistic. But, but that's actually not true. Like etymologically, the word purposeful means targeted or focused. So a purposeful meeting is a meeting with some clear objectives. And so then when I think uh, about purpose in a company's context, yes, it should indeed be to serve society, but it also involves focusing on what you should be doing and what you should be doing less of. So some companies will try and claim my purpose is to serve uh, customers and employees and the environment and suppliers and taxpayers and shareholders. 
But I think that's problematic because there are trade-offs. So if you're an energy company, do I shut down a polluting plant that will help employ that will help the environment, but it will hurt employees? So I think a purpose statement needs to be targeted, just like a citizen's purpose wouldn't be I want to be a doctor and a lawyer and a teacher and entrepreneur. You'd focus on one of those things. Similarly, with with companies, what I think has got a little distorted in the lexicon is that purpose has become a bit too vague. It's been completely about altruism, when for me, it's about serving society, but in a focused and targeted manner. Well, before we talk about trade-offs, because that that is a a great area that you discuss in your book, um, I want to talk a little bit about sort of how you've characterized this in, in other discussions online, which is this idea of, of where it comes from. Is it intentional? Is it organic? And how innovative does it have to be? Yeah, so I, I think innovation is one thing that I, I stress probably more than other advocates of business and, and of purposeful business. And I think it goes back to the idea of the pie growing versus pie splitting mentality. So often people think a purposeful company is one that ensures a fair split of the pie so that shareholders aren't getting too much, that workers are getting enough. But I think really one of the big drivers of purpose is innovation because that's how you, you grow the pie and uh, create social value. So one example I talk about in the book is Vodafone, uh, the UK telecoms company. Now, in, I think, 2012, it became the first uh, company in the telecoms industry to launch a tax transparency report showing how much tax they were paying to governments worldwide. And many people see that as purposeful because that shows that they're fair on tax. And don't get me wrong, being fair on tax is, is really important. You need to ensure the pie is distributed fairly. But I think what was far more purposeful was the fact that uh, five years ago, they'd launched M-Pesa, a mobile money service which provided financial inclusion to people in Kenya. In fact, it launched 200,000 people out of poverty, many of them headed by women. And that wouldn't be captured by many traditional ESG metrics, but I think that's far more about purpose because it's about about innovation. Now, going back to intentionality, um, you might think, well, shouldn't a business which is focused purely on shareholder value, shouldn't they want to be innovative as as well? And I'd say yes, but a, a, a business which is focused on shareholder value will be innovative only if the innovation would be clearly monetizable. So you might innovate to develop a product that you could sell in the UK or the US, but maybe you wouldn't develop something which could go to Kenya. So that's why I do think intentionality matters, but it's combined with innovation. If you innovate, is your intentionality to solve a social problem or is your intentionality to um, purely make long-term profits? And so um, the intentionality to serve a social problem, solve a social problem is key. But I think it does need to be combined with innovation, whereas most of the times I, I see purpose being talked about, it's about splitting an existing pie more fairly. Well, let's move on to trade-offs. Thank you. Uh, particularly in a temporal context, because I think it... it it has a lot to do with what you just said. And, and here are two examples that I try and sort of weigh on, on myself in terms of near-term social value and the longer-term question of if, if it still is there. Um, 
as relates to the uh, COVID-19 crisis. So if you took Amazon right now and their delivery service and other deliveries, they would seem to be a positive uh, social force in terms of of our self-isolation and receiving goods and, and books like yours. Yet over the long term, what is the negative implication on local businesses uh, and local areas of employment? Um, to give you another example uh, that's COVID-19 related, um, there's clearly an intense urgency and need for contact tracing apps to contain COVID-19. Um, it's, it's, you could say it's one of the differentiators for why some countries uh, um, now have higher uh, cases and other countries like Taiwan, Singapore, and South Korea do not. Um, and so there's a clear immediate social value to something like that. But, you know, the question is, is there a trade-off in the long term for what that might manifest into? For instance, um, invasion into uh, your rights to privacy. I think in, in these cases, there, are, there will always be trade-offs. Um, and I think one of the roles of the leader is to try to navigate those trade-offs by highlighting what are the most important stakeholders to them. So as I mentioned earlier, I don't think that a purpose can be to serve every single stakeholder because of the existence of trade-offs. So what a personal leader thinks about is what is my business in the, um, the, the business of providing and focus particularly on those uh, stakeholder dimensions. So if indeed for Amazon, it is to ensure that the many have what the few could have previously, then what they need to be absolutely ruthless about being is, is as a platform where um, every company can sell their products and rather than bias towards sort of the ones that they, they are pushing themselves. Going back to this idea of unemployment, this is interesting because I think we want to think about the, the wider um, consequences of this. So it, it may well indeed be true that Amazon um, being in existence will reduce the number of high streets stores that we have but and i accept that my point my position here might be a controversial one i'm not sure that that's necessarily a bad thing because high street real estate space is really scarce and really expensive if that space can be reallocated to things such as gyms or restaurants or cafes that's not necessarily a bad thing because what amazon is allowing is actually that scarce space if indeed you don't need that for a shop because people are willing to buy online there are other uses to which that that could be put and so one could argue that actually um, amazon does solve a social purpose in terms of um, taking a very scarce resource reducing the need for that resource and therefore allowing that resource which is limited high street um, store space to be allocated elsewhere so i want to talk uh, or stick more on this idea about how uh, how we identify purpose within companies I'm guessing I'm wondering, and I, you, you've partially answered it uh, earlier, um, talking about sort of Friedmanism. But you know, is it epiphenomenal for it to exist, for purpose to exist? Do certain material conditions have to be met first? Do they have to be in place, or or is it something that we only recognize on an ex post basis? Yeah, so unfortunately, I'm going to give the, the typical economist or academic answer, which is it, it's a bit of both. Um, but let me now try and justify that rather than being fence-sitting. So um, as, as um, you would guess, I would say part of it is ex post because you do want to look at outcomes. You don't just want somebody who states a purpose but doesn't follow through. But what happens if, if, if say, it's a fledgling business and then you don't yet know uh, that there's not yet um, – 
some some output that that you can measure. I think uh, just to, to ask people, um, the, the founders of the business, what their purpose is, is is really powerful. So um, some of the listeners might be familiar with the Blueprint for Better Business, which is a consortium of leading companies and investors to try to instill purpose throughout UK business. And what they came up with was a list of eight questions that um, investors can ask management to figure out whether they are truly purpose-led. And so the first question that they have is, in simple terms, what is the company in business to deliver and to whom? And what's surprising is that a seemingly simple question like that can evoke a huge range of responses. So there is a, a large company outside the UK which um, invited me to talk about the importance of purpose at one of the company's offsites because they were trying to repurpose the company. But they still answer that question by saying, well, our business is um, to deliver long-term shareholder value. So they actually didn't have a purpose beyond that. But if you ask this to, to, to people, then you might get a, a huge variety of responses. And I think this is useful because also people think about, well, how, how can we measure whether a company is truly purposeful? Because there's problems with ESG ratings. They're not highly correlated with each other. Different rating providers will say different things. But I would say talking to management is as useful as interviewing somebody for, for a job. Now in the world of AI and data crawling, you could probably grab a lot of information by trawling through their LinkedIn and their social media and doing some data analytics on their CV, but you still want to meet and interview that person. And I think as an investor, to try to meet and and ask management these these tough questions, I think provides way more information than one might get from uh, just looking at ESG metrics and sustainability reports. Sure. Well, I'm going to put that to a side because the sort of top-down and bottom-up kind of fundamental approach to, to understanding these issues is a fascinating uh, point that I want to come to in a second. But sticking on the behavior of companies or what conditions need to exist for, for purpose to manifest, um, what kind of behavior do you think is necessary? And sticking on this this idea of, of signaling or, or committing, we saw the business roundtable earlier this year come out with a statement around supporting the stakeholders. Companies themselves make a lot of different commitments. They make financial commitments, i.e. earnings guidance. We think that central bank guidance is incredibly important in terms of credibility. So how do commitments or signaling work in this sphere? I think this is important because this uh, holds you accountable to being uh, to, to um, achieving progress. So if you think of, say, uh, Marks and Spencer with, with Plan A, so what they had was a list of um, criteria that we, they would be tracking and measuring. And then if you look at their Plan A reports, they will say, well, for certain measures, let's say youth employment, they were on plan or on track. Others, they would admit that they're off track. And so what's, what, why I thought that was convincing was they decided ahead of time what the measures they were going to report and what they're going to be held accountable for. Uh, and I think that's, that's much better than just saying we're going to be purposeful but not being clear as to what this m- means. And then after the fact, you can always handpick some measures that you do well on. So in order to define for yourself what, what purpose actually means, that translates a concept which is typically nebulous uh, to something which is concrete. So I think in terms of what behavioural traits, I think one of them is, is to know what, um, what, how you're going to keep track of progress. But I think others include the following. I think focus which I mentioned earlier, is critical. So purpose is just as much about knowing what not to do as what to do. 
uh, I think another is is intrinsic um, because even a company which is focused on shareholder value would keep track of progress. You'd keep track of your customer numbers and your customer retention. Um, but the, you would have to have some measures which are not clearly linked to shareholder value, but are linked to serving society. And then I think the fourth is, is that you need a long-term horizon. So how you evaluate and reward particular senior management, that needs to be based according to long-term performance, not just short-term numbers. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, I completely agree with you. I think these commitments, and not all of them have value, but, but certainly some do. And the trick is trying to figure out which ones those are. I mean, I go back to, I'd written a paper on Japanese corporate governance uh, reform uh, a number of years ago, but you found this small cohort of, mm. of companies in Japan commit to a certain thing, uh, return on equity, sort of a, a long-term measure. And, and, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a small cohort of companies in the overall context of topics, but, mm. um, you know, it was sort of, it was an anomaly. You had to sort of explain away the difference. And as you sort of unpack that, you found these companies better able to manage through economic cycles. They weren't going for sort of quick fixes or sugar highs in terms of buying back stocks or doing a special dividend. They were, they were more mature and, and, um, and, and there was sort of a high correlation between that and the market rewarding that those companies, which were fairly se sector neutral. Yeah, and I think this, this what, what I find really interesting is the analogy between um, company purpose and personal purpose. Mm. So one of my favorite business books is Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey, which is about how, how a person can live a purposeful life. And, and he highlights the importance of, of having scorecards or measures to track your progress. And, and we, we like to not think about that because we think, oh, well, this should be, just be intrinsic and you should just do it anyway. But I think purpose uh, so scorecards matter just like say with with fitness right this is why things like fitbits and tracking apps that matter for example one measure that you might have um and and one that uh, one of my co-authors has she's um she, she she's a professor and her husband has a powerful job as well as, to, as their metric is to make sure that no more than once a week will their children have dinner with without both parents present and for somebody else that a, a purpose might be well how many how many hours a week do i spend with my kids or something like that and and yes that might seem like artificial shouldn't you do this anyway but actually if you're tracking this then you'll know well actually this week uh well my kids had two meals without both parents or i only spent four hours rather than six hours reading to them if something really does matter to you you are going to measure it not just to report it externally but you want to know how you're doing mm -hmm. and certainly if you want to think about intentionality well is this something that people truly want to do rather than signing this business roundtable statement because it's it's good pr you should want to track this internally so the whole idea of reporting is not just to external stakeholders but it's to, to, within the organization to, to show is what you are striving for something you're achieving because if it's not then you'll know what remedial actions to take so We've seen the launch and popularity of a great many ESG-oriented indices over the last couple of years. And by most accounts, they've seemed to have performed relatively well throughout the current crisis. Uh, this performance purports to be ESG-driven, although personally I think it's, it's somewhat debatable. But I guess my question is, by any measure, do you think an ESG risk premia, call it a sustainability risk premia, or maybe a purpose plus profit risk premia, does it exist in the way we think about other risk premia? 
I think it doesn't. And so while there is a, a premium to companies with high sustainability or high, high purpose, what sets it apart from different factors or different risk premia is it's difficult for some which to um, quantify and to put into a portfolio. So we think of other factors, let's say momentum or size or book to market. There you can have a computer program which evaluates a company's recent performance or their size or their book to market and then combines that all into a factor. However, for a company's purpose, that's very situation specific. For example, let's say governance, we typically think about good governance is always better. But there's actually some evidence suggesting that in some cases we actually want weaker governance. Why? Because a company has some business relationships that it wants to sustain. And that might actually involve protecting a company from outside investors who might want to milk that stakeholder relationship. So because it's not something that you can combine into a factor, I would say purposeful companies outperform. But there isn't a purposeful factor that we can amalgamate just by taking some quantitative information on company sustainability performance. How do we think about purpose uh, in the inverse? Uh, not necessarily so much about outperformance and, and above average returns, but about the more traditional sort of risk element. I mean, and this maybe is a question more, more broadly about, you know, sort of the role of ESG in identifying risks. Um, clearly, climate risk is, is further along. But, you know, when we think about ESG and, and purpose in the context of how we have defined risk academically um, and quantitatively, um, the capital asset pricing model or Fama French factors. Um, ESG, you know, tends to kind of act as more of a rhetorical device, you know, and it tends to be ratings related. Um, ratings, you know, are useful. Um, they've given you some sense of the ordinal quality of 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 a company, if, if a company is the fourth riskiest in its sector, we have a, a ranking sense, but, but no absolute sense of the economic exposure at play. How do we kind of bring in or evolve these intangibles more into that framework? It's by trying to make them tangible, um, which might seem an obvious answer, is that you make an intangible tangible. But what, what's been really good is, is, is how much progress that there has been made in trying to put um, financial numbers on what was historically purely intangible and, and to try to look at if indeed you're exposed to climate or you're creating positive value, what does this mean financially? Um, so there was um, a McKinsey, a very detailed McKinsey report on climate change and, and the financial impact of this. Um, I, I wish I could remember its name, but just going into detail as to looking at what is the financial impact of, say, a one degree increase in, in temperature. And on the flip side, not just looking at negative risk, but, but positive returns, um, there are measures to try to look at, say, uh, how much return is created by, say, reducing um, alcohol incidents or, or sexual assault. So why I come up with that examples is there's the Texas Pacific Group's RISE Fund, and uh, they've come up with a, with a metric in order to try to quantify those financial benefits of something which, is, which, which, which seems to be purely social. Now, it might seem sort of hard-hearted to try to come up with a quantitative number for what is the benefit of preventing sexual assaults. But why we need those numbers is, is that money is not lim unlimited. It could be that as an impact investor, do I invest in this or something else which is going to reduce cancer or something else which is going to improve literacy? So what people have tried to do is, is, is to come up 
with quantitative measures of of looking at the impact. And um, on my website, which is growthepie.net, what I've been trying to do is to blog about um, certain developments that happened after uh, the book is finished. And one of them is indeed that metric, um, that framework which TPG was able to come up with for, for the RISE Fund. Yeah, well, it would it would be great to see more of, of this work. I mean, uh, again, I go back and, and I'm just I'm amazed at all the great work around single issuer sort of case studies. But as you sort of elevate uh, the thinking, the thinking and, and sort of quantitative effort around this, it becomes more and more rarefied when you start trying to understand what this risk uh, represents at a portfolio level, at a manager, you know, selection level for for consultants and fund of funds, and 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 particularly at a asset allocation level, uh, whether it's dynamic or strategic. Yes, absolutely. I think this is what some of the, the reports are trying to look at. So if you think about uh, a, uh, the effect on climate, what are the asset classes that's, that it's particularly going to be affecting in what industries? And so they'll try to come up with, with some numbers. Obviously, those numbers will be highly uncertain because what we have is, is something where we, we're not sure about the impact. But certainly what that will provide is a framework. People will actually differ, will, will disagree as to what the inputs will be which go into it. But what that framework allows is us to talk meaningfully as to what might be the financial impact of climate change in our portfolio rather than just thinking, oh, this is something that we should be taking into account, but we really don't really know how to change cell C23 and Excel spreadsheets, so we, we will ignore it. How do you think we should measure the response of companies to the COVID-19 crisis? In other words, how should we think about their actions, how they treat shareholders, employees, indeed all stakeholders in the context of profit and purpose? So I think this is where the growing the pie mindset is particularly useful. So there are many companies who've engaged in some great pie splitting actions where they've donated parts of the pie to stakeholders to ensure that they don't have to bear too much of the pain. For example, let's take Unilever, which is guaranteeing the jobs of their 150,000 employees. However, there are only a certain number of companies who can engage in pie splitting because not every company has a lot of money lying on the table. So some businesses might be smaller startup businesses or others might have been badly hit and unable to keep paying their workers because it's just not commercial. They'll go bankrupt. So I think for those companies, we should evaluate them according to growing the pie. So what have they done innovatively in order to try to serve society? And those might be things which don't really cost a company a lot but actually have a lot in terms of the, the outcome. For example, let's take Qantas Airlines. It's not continuing to pay its workers because that would just be commercial suicide. But what they have done is entered into a relationship with a Woolworth's grocery store, whereby the furloughed employees have been redeployed. Or you can think of, say, a startup gym company. Right? They're not able to keep paying their workers, but what they are offering to wider society is free online fitness classes to help people who are self-isolated. So I think it depends on the business. So, so those who are able to bear their share of the um, shrinking pie, that they actually do it by continuing to pay workers if they can. But those that can't, I think it's, it's a bit misleading to say every company should do the right thing of paying their employees because that's not possible. And for those who can't do it, are there other innovative things that they can do which don't cost them a lot but do have a big social benefit? So I want to change lanes uh, for these last couple of questions. Um, 
First, students make up a big part of this of this podcast, um, and I'm always asked this question, so I'd like to ask it to you as well. You know, what advice would you give them, given your experience in finance as an educator and, and clearly as someone whose research has gone a long, long ways towards differentiating what the idea of, of best managed, best governed really means for companies? I think it would be to highlight just the criticality of, of looking at these ESG factors. So when I started uh, my academic career 13 years ago as a professor at Wharton, I remember the first uh, socially responsible investment conference I went to, and the investment firms there were not the mainstream firms that you hear about nowadays. But then, as you mentioned in an early question, it's the Larry Finks of BlackRock's of the, this world who are now taking this um, very, very seriously. So this has become mainstream. So often people thought in the past that ESG or climate change, those are non-financial factors that socially responsible investors should look at. But traditional investors should look at financial things like profits and dividends. But as we just discussed, right, climate change, if that happens, that's a financial risk to to one's portfolio. So to be really aware of this. And I think in particular, um, the fact that so many of these factors are non-financial and non-quantitative means that they are, I think, the ideal thing to build a career on the basis of. So if you are an expert in analysing profits and dividends, credit ratings and balance sheets, you might become outsourced to artificial intelligence one day because anything which is quantitative, you can have a smart beta fund which invests on the basis of those criteria. But something that can only be understood in terms of a strategic context or something that you can only discern, like intentionality, by meeting and talking to managers, that's something why I think active management will always have a role in. So I think regardless of, of what type of investment firm you want to go into or whether you want to go into a, a standard corporate role, these uh, the, the idea of, of purpose being something to be siloed to a CSR department of a company or an SRI team of an investor is, I think, just incorrect. Got it. Got it. So on a lighter note, your bio speaks a lot to your career in finance and, and obviously in education. Um, outside of that, you are apparently a Barry's boot camp devotee. As a side note, by the way, I tried that once and it almost broke my spirit. So kudos to you. <laughs> but Thanks. given that we're all suffering from varying degrees of, of self-isolation, what hack, what kind of pro tip could you give us in terms of maintaining discipline in, in, in all respects? Yeah, thanks for asking that, Jason. So, so for me, I, I think physical fitness is, is, is really important. And if I go back to the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People book, uh, one of the really um, striking things that I took away from that book was his, his chapter on time management. He says we th- need to focus on what's important versus what's not important, whereas typically people think about what's urgent versus what's not urgent, and you deal with urgent stuff first, such as replying to an, to an email. So I think in terms of a hack is to think about spending your time on important things, even if they're not urgent. And I think exercise is, is really one of them, because if you don't exercise, you're not going to feel the effects for uh, maybe years, but uh, the, these are things which are important for the long term. And that's similar to the importance of purpose for a company, is if you think about training your employees or reducing your carbon footprint, that's something where it's not urgent because the effects are not immediate, but it is certainly important. 
So in terms of the practical tip, just to you, you want to prioritize and schedule important things in your tour calendar, even if they're, they're they're not urgent. So I try to make sure that every single day I will do a Barry's Bootcamp live streamed workout. Now, the, one of the nice things with live streamed workouts is you don't need to play it at the time. You can always watch it afterwards. But I think that you shouldn't allow yourself with that because if you say, well, I'm going to do it whenever my work gets done, um, then you are perhaps going to be tired at the end of the day. So if the live stream workout is going to be one which is on at, say, 5 p.m., I'm going to do it at 5 p.m. and drop what I'm doing because that gives me the discipline of making sure that that is what's important to me and I'm going to start with the important things because that's what I want you to make a priority. Good. Those uh, Those are some great tips then. And last thing before we end, Alex, um, what kind of work are you focused on right now? What are some upcoming research projects or writing projects that you can discuss? So I've actually started working on another book, uh, but this book is not something brand new from scratch. It's the book called Principles of Corporate Finance by Breeley, Myers and Allen, which for many, many years has been considered the Bible of finance. So when I studied as an undergrad, it was the textbook that we all learned from. When I was at Morgan Stanley, it was in everybody's bookshelves. And so it's been a huge honour for me to be invited to be a co-author of the book for the next edition, which will be the 14th edition. And one of the things that I really want to instill in this book is the importance of responsible business. So one criticism of finance education, which I think is partially deserved, is that it's typically focused just on shareholder value. So why do some companies act non-purposefully is they've only been taught frameworks for decision making under shareholder value maximization. So here I put a huge new chapter in on responsible business, but I also want it not just to be one chapter. I'm trying to instill the importance of responsibility throughout many of the chapters. So hopefully this will be a key resource that will equip uh, the leaders of the, the, the world in the future to be able to put these decisions into practice. Look, so it's been fascinating to unpack the ideas in Alex's new book, Grow the Pie, how the relationship among stakeholders, shareholders, and corporate purpose doesn't have to be a zero-sum game, and why our expectations for companies and their contribution to society needs to be both re-examined and rebased, frankly. So I'd really like to thank you for your time and views today. I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group, here today with Alex Edmonds, professor of finance at London Business School and author of the just-released book, Grow the Pie, out on Cambridge University Press. Many thanks for joining us on A Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episodes. Thanks, Alex. Thanks very much, Jason. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our guests and, of course, everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash ri dash podcast, or look for us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Podbean. And last, this podcast is an open educational resource. It's meant to be shared. And if you enjoy it, please take a second to review it on iTunes. I'm also really interested in your views, ideas, and opinions. So feel free to drop me a line at jason.mitchell at man.com.